0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: When we talk about depression, it's almost like there's colloquial depression and then there's clinical depression. So, colloquial depression is the way we throw around the word in everyday language, like, ugh, I didn't get Taylor Swift tickets, I'm so depressed. Or, so and so's partner broke up with them and they seem quite depressed. Clinical depression isn't that? Of course, language is fluid, the meaning of words change, and that's not a bad thing. But the muddying of the meaning of mental health conditions, like depression, can leave us confused about what we're dealing with.
0: I spend most of my life now talking about the difference between distress, which is contextual, versus those who develop disorders. Those where the context is the context, but it's not the real or the whole explanation.
1: And with depression, which is one of the more common mental health conditions, not only are many people confused about what it really means, there are all kinds of myths about it. Like that it's just a chemical imbalance in the brain, or that treatment doesn't work, or that treatment leads to suicide, or that psychedelics are a silver bullet. This is All In The Mind, I'm Sana Qadar, and for our first episode of 2024, we're going to wade through all of that with Professor Ian Hickey.
0: I'm a psychiatrist, and I'm the co-director of health and policy at the Brain and Mind Centre of the University of Sydney.
1: He's also the author of The Devil You Knew, The Myths Around Depression, and Why Your Best Days Are Ahead of You. And how long have you been a psychiatrist? How long have you been in the space? Well,
0: I've been a psychiatrist now for 35 years, fully qualified. And I was thinking the other day, if I chucked in the five or six years training before that, technically next year will be year number 40. Oh, wow. Of being actively in the mental health professions.
1: Okay, so you really know what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> Either that or I'm saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> no, things have really changed in a really positive way in the four decades now that I've been in it.
1: So today, we ask, are you depressed or distressed? And what's the difference anyways? Depression is a term that's thrown around a lot casually, also seriously, but I don't think we always know what we're talking about when we say depression. So can you talk about what the difference is between depression and clinical depression?
0: So in the whole time I've been involved in depression awareness, first of all, we had to get people to use words that were emotional anxious, depressed, fearful, sad. That had a great upside. People actually naming the emotions that they're experiencing and linking them into behaviors. It's had a real downside. Everyone goes, oh, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. I'm sad. I cry. I get upset. Bad things happen. I get depressed. Mm-hmm. I go, no, you don't. You have normal mood. The professions I'm in and the bits that I'm interested in are those people that are categorically go off a cliff, have a different thing. So when I talk about clinical depression, I'm talking about that thing that about one in five people will have in their lifetime, meaning four out of five of us will not have that thing. Right. We'll say we're depressed and we will cry and we will get upset and stuff will happen and we'll probably have lots of mental health challenges in our lifetime, but we will not get depressed. So this thing about what it is, that's different. So the trouble is we have sort of checklists of symptoms, which are pretty nonspecific. You feel low, you feel sad, you cry, you feel hopeless you have sleep disturbance, you have other problems. People go, oh, i got a bunch of those, so I'm depressed, right? You go, no, they're just the superficial layers of the thing mm-hmm. that commonly are expressed. There are much more central features, like fundamentally losing pleasure in life, the anhedonia, lack of hedonism, much more important than low mood. And the second thing, the thing I make a really big fuss about is it's physiological. It's a perturbation, a change in the whole body, not just in your brain, not just in the way you think, but in the way your body clock runs, in the way your immune system runs, in your hormonal systems, the disaggregation of all those body systems that translate to wellness, mm-hmm. that translate to energy, that translate to being able to physiologically function. So a lot of my life is tied up with people say, I'm not depressed, I'm sick. I go, no, no, you are sick right. and you are depressed because it's a whole body experience.
1: So that is what separates the disorder from everything else. Depression isn't just low mood and feeling sad. It's that plus the whole body effects and that loss of pleasure.
0: You cannot appreciate a great spring day. In fact, you lose your emotionality. You may stop crying. You may stop responding. That is central. And it's then surrounded by typical ways of thinking. Hopelessness, helplessness. I can't see the future. Thoughts of dying.
1: Luckily, as Professor Hickey said, this is something most of us won't experience.
0: The more we've promoted the awareness of it, the more unpopular it's become to say it's not something we all have. It's not simply fixed by exercise, not simply fixed by diet. So there are other behavioural and lifestyle adaptations that are really important to our general mental health and well-being, but they're not on their own treatments for depression when we talk about that clinical thing, which is a really serious illness, if I sound I worked up about it, that kills people <laughs> right. and ruins their lives and comes back and is not to be trivialised.
1: When patients come to Dr Hickey, they often have a story about their depression.
0: Oh, work's difficult. The wife's a problem. I've got these other difficulties. The kids are annoying me. That's why I'm depressed.
1: But often, that story is wrong.
0: You go, no, 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 you are depressed. That's why you're having trouble with intimate relationships, kids, work, finances. You can't solve things. You're stuck. And that stuck often is a slow down then in cognition, in thinking, it's a loss of facial expression. It's a lack of interaction with others. So you're psychologically and physically sick.
1: Mm. What you said a moment ago about how you're, it's not that your work stress is causing your depression, you're having issues at work because you're depressed. That's really interesting. And that's that brings us to the myths. I want to talk about some of the biggest myths that exist out there about depression. Let's start with that one, though, because I think a lot of people do think that depression is caused by life events. You know, something goes wrong and... You end up depressed. This
0: is, I'm glad you picked that up. <laughs> in all the discussion I've done about this, this is the number one myth. Right. Every human has a story as to why they're in this situation now. We humans do not walk around with no explanation. We all have a story, which is usually the story of how I got to your office or how I got to the GP or how I got to the psychologist. Mm-hmm. My wife just left me. I just lost my job. I'm in financial difficulties, which is often the precipitate, the crisis. Someone's finally use many men as examples here, has dragged that person into care. And the danger is the GP or the psychologist or somebody else goes, oh, well, that's the reason. Okay. So we we'll just get a new job, new wife, new fixture financial and the problem will go away. You go, hang on, hang on, hang on, back up. When did this start? How long has this been going on? Now, typically, if you come to talk to the spouse or partner of someone in this situation, go, actually, he's been like that for five years mm-hmm. and withdrawn and we've lost our money and we've lost our house and he's drinking too much mm. and I left. The depression came first its consequences have resulted in the crisis in our life now. Right. It's not the cause, it's the consequence.
1: That's really interesting. So there's no cases in which like a marriage breakdown or anything big like that leads to depression. It may, may lead to low mood, but not depression? Is that what you're saying?
0: So lots of us will have been through relationship breakdowns, other areas in our lives, losses of jobs, financial difficulties that have caused us a great deal of emotional distress. And I think this is one of the big issues at the moment. I spend most of my life now talking about the difference between distress which is contextual. These bad things happen. They, we lose, we grieve, we're upset by those things, which are contextual, versus those who develop disorders, those right. where the context is the context, but it's not the real or the whole explanation. Mm. Now, having said that, chronic stress, so people think it's an acute event, something bad happened yesterday. So every time I have an acute event, earthquake, disaster, oh, well, everyone will get depressed. No, they won't. <laughs> In fact, very few people. Chronic stress matters much more. If you are in a chronically stressful situation, you're caring for somebody or a chronic financial situation, if you're in a bad intimate relationship, in fact my own doctoral thesis is based on bad interpersonal relationships and the course of depression. So prolonged stressful situations are associated with an increased risk. And it's the chronic stress. It's the effect of that on your physiology Mm. over time which exhausts you and takes you, if you're vulnerable still, over the edge okay. so chronic stress is much more important as a risk factor and much more important to sort out
1: what are some other giant myths about depression that you want to myth bust
0: That it's psychological you know it's a cognitive process that you can talk yourself out of of course if you've ever been depressed people say to you which we historically have said well get yourself sorted just give yourself a stiff talking to drag mm-hmm. yourself out of it." anyone who's seriously depressed will go that just doesn't work Now, of course, the danger of some psychological therapies that are simplistically delivered in the middle of an acute episode of depression run that same risk. All right. Now, this is different to the severity of depression you have, the type of depression matters, which is a little bit different to preventing depression coming back and contemplating what has happened Mm. is really important to preventing recurrence.
1: Coming back to – so you said, okay, it's not psychological – What is it then? Because you also write in your section about myths that it's not just a chemical imbalance either.
0: Oh, no. So the chemical imbalance bit, if we treat into neuroscience here, right, your brain's a mushy thing with nerve cells of many different types and they form circuits. And those circuits are cabling and chemistry working together to produce the complex behaviours that we have. So back in the 1980s, 99s, when people were trying to explain why antidepressants work, People use two terminologies. One of, oh, if you change the chemistry and lift one, there must be an imbalance in it. And then worse than that, there must be a deficit in it. You must lack serotonin or lack dopamine and we're putting it back. These were attempts to explain. In fact, the serious research at the side never never said either. They're just saying it works. My favorite example in my own personal life is ibuprofen. You know neurofen? Yeah. You know arthritis? I can't get out of bed in the morning and walk and do stuff at my age with (laughs) arthritis that I have without the chemical assistance of some of those products which then allows me to be physically active Mm. and actually reduce those things but it's not the cause of my arthritis a lack of nerofen or ibuprofen or a lack of aspirin i do not have an aspirin deficiency
1: so if depression isn't caused by an acute life stressor it's not the result of wonky psychology and it's not the result of a chemical imbalance what causes it
0: so we can say at a population level, 30% is genetic, 10% is about childhood risk factors, 50% is about the current context, and 10% is we don't know. <laughs> so, now we've been knowing that for 40 years. Only trouble is the genetics turns out to be really complicated—not mm. what we thought. The childhood one, which everyone says is the cause, you know, most interviews that people start with now about your childhood, mm. and people spend years reconstructing their childhood, and for most people, it's not the cause. <laughs> right. The complex interplay of their current environments matters and things that have happened in their life matter, not just events that have happened but things like having had COVID, having had infection, having had cancer, what treatments you're taking, how many drugs and alcohol you take. There's lots of other environmental factors. Our biggest problem is that's all very good when we're talking about the population or people with depression in general. Mm -hmm. But for you, if you're depressed, that's no help at all Mm. (laughs) because it doesn't tell you in your case what proportion is relevant to you? And this leads to this crisis in clinical care because people come in and go, what caused it? Mm. Oh, I go, yeah, look, um, we're never really going to know the answer to that. So a lot of this book in my, my life is about, look, look, let's not dwell on that, okay? okay. Let's stop blaming your mum Let's because <laughs> we're probably never really going to know. Okay. Let's work out how to get out of the episode and then how do you stay out? Now, then that is an individual journey of exploration, because uh, annoyingly, there is no brain scan or blood test or EEG, some simple thing that says what your depression is as distinct from the next person in the waiting room. We have to kind of find out and try to work out, uh, do you have certain types? And I try to emphasise here different types or pathways that make it more or less likely you're on a certain kind of path and therefore certain kinds of treatment are more likely to work Versus other sorts of treatments which are unlikely to work. It isn't random. Another great myth is that, well, this is not so much a myth. (gasps) This is actually a bit more experiential. Many people just get the treatment. You have psychological treatment, no matter what's wrong. No matter what sort of depression you've got, start here with this CBT. Or start here with this Prozac-like drug, this SSRI drug.
1: Just to be clear, SSRIs are a type of antidepressant and they stand for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor.
0: Because that's what we do to everyone. Right. This is very unhelpful. But big health systems, love that. Here is not just the checklist for whether you've got it. Here is the clinical pathway. Start here. All people start in square one. Do this. And this is so-called stepped care in Australia. You must all do psychological therapy first. Or you must all do SSRIs as the first drug, the Prozac-like drugs. This is a really bad way to start. This is like it's just fever or it's Mm. just headache. We won't try and work out what's a brain tumour or a migraine. It's just headache. It doesn't help to get so generic that the treatments are just handed out in a generic way.
1: Explain that a bit more because you write that clinical depression is not a single entity, which I, as someone who've, who's never had it and not really, as far as I've known, known anyone with it, I didn't realise that there's different types of depression. Can you talk about the fact that there are more than one type of depression?
0: Yeah, this is a problem we caused ourselves. So we had this huge public thing. We used to fight about this forever, okay, 15 types of depression. has been fought about for centuries. To the credit of the Americans back in the 1980s, they said, hang on a second, why don't we just go and call it all major depression? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we just put it all there and they did believe, the Americans can be quite dominant in their single beliefs, they did believe at the time there was one final common pathway, that it would all be explained by the stress arousal system. It didn't matter what the cause was, this would be the explanation for everything. So they promoted on the one hand major depression as the concept and they were working on a neurobiology in a fairly narrow way mm-hmm. of the stress arousal system being the cause. Mm-hmm. And then they looked for treatments. Sadly, those treatments haven't worked, but that's a separate story. In truth, there are a number of different pathophysiological pathways. There are, like fever, like headache, like back pain, there are many examples where what is causing the problem is different. So the task these days is to find which depressive type and pathway you're on.
1: So let's just run through a few types. There's anxious depression.
0: Anxious depression is the most common, and that's the one that responds best to psychological therapies and SSRIs. So it's good that the most commonly prescribed treatments also connect with the most people.
1: There's also what Ian refers to as circadian depression.
0: So one of the newer ideas, and myself and my colleagues have tried to try and change the language and call it circadian depression. It is your body clock. It's not your wife. It's not your background. It is the change of seasons. It is travel. Mm. They're the people who do badly with SSRIs and they do badly with cognitive therapy because they're not a cognitive problem.
1: And then there's a whole lot more, like bipolar depression, perinatal depression, the list goes on.
0: So what you said, this this marketing of the one thing has led to the one outcome. Mm. For many people, that's resulted in bad experiences.
1: Right. And are we in a paradigm shift with that now or is that sort of still being worked through.
0: Yes and no. In depression, we've done such a great job of making it generic Mm. (laughs) and being out there and talked about. We kind of done ourselves a disservice. I make the... i give the example in the book. One of the saddest cases I've ever involved a woman with very severe postnatal depression, almost lost her life and the life of her child. But her mum had been in a psychiatric hospital for two years after she was born. Oh, wow. And no one ever told that story. Wow. Now, if we had known that, Mm. if she had known that, before the birth of the child, Mm. we would have treated that really differently. So,
1: knowing what type of depression a person has is key to treating them properly. But before you even get to treatment, there's a myth they don't actually work.
0: Okay, only in psychiatry would we be debating stuff about where there's been meta-analysis studies for now 30 years. Even though the biggest meta-analysis in the world about five years ago done in Oxford, of all the thousands of studies and tens of thousands of patients said they do work. Now, that's as a, at a high level. That does not mean they work the same for everybody. Right. No treatment works the same for everybody. So the distribution then is some will get a lot better, some people will have bad experiences, some will have no effect and some will benefit a lot. And then also I've said distinctly, as we've for some types of of depression, different kinds of antidepressants are likely to be better or worse. So the differentials here, depending on what you've got, imagine if we just gave penicillin to everybody (laughs) with all infections, anyone's got a fever, sore throat, Mm. okay, you'd see an effect, but some people would be completely irrelevant. Trying to work out which ones should actually get penicillin is the next stage of that. Not to say penicillin doesn't work, but in our area, people go back and go, antidepressants don't work. That's just wrong.
1: A related myth to this belief that treatments don't work is the idea that treatments aren't necessary anyways, because if you give a person long enough, they'll get better on their own. That can happen in some cases, but unsurprisingly, there's a risk.
0: Great myths in the treatment of depression is that there was no damage done by an episode of depression or by recurrent depression. Like, you know, when it went, that's Damage done? To the brain. Right, Okay. Now, if you think about this medically... If I say to you, look, it doesn't matter how many heart attacks you have, your heart will be fine, or how many infections you have of your kidney, you'll be fine. You go, you're kidding, serious? Because the whole rest of medicine, the more recurrent episodes you have of all those things, typically, the more damage you do to that organ. Well, guess what? Your brain's the same. Now we have evidence of depression as a risk factor to dementia. So treating depression helps to reduce the risk of dementia, because in truth, there is a physiology. And a damaging one. There's stuff going on there neurobiologically during depression which is bad for your brain. It doesn't just feel bad Mm -hmm. or look bad. It is bad. So the idea you can just be depressed as many times as you like, as long as you don't kill yourself, as long as you don't do something really bad and you'll be okay again when it passes is not true because many areas in depression go, oh, don't worry, they'll get better if we just wait long enough. So no need to treat, which you think about many other areas of medicine, that's the weirdest thing to say. (laughs) Don't treat the asthma, don't treat the diabetes, don't treat the heart. It'll resolve. Yeah, because if they're alive, they'll resolve. But this gets said, if I sound a little frustrated, a little upset about this after all these years, that still gets said every day of the week. And if we go and look at public surveys we have, many people believe that's what they should do. They wait twice or three times as long Mm. to go for care, believing two things, my two biggest myths. Treatment won't help, Mm -hmm. or it doesn't matter because I'll just recover spontaneously. And I'm going, actually, both of those things are wrong. Right. (laughs) Yes, episodes of depression do end, but they often do great damage, and they often put your life at risk in the episode.
1: Sticking with misnomers about treatment for a moment, there's one about suicide that I've heard previously, and it's that antidepressants can lead to suicide. Because before they fully kick in, they can lift a person out of their depression just enough to give them motivation to then perhaps take their life. But is that actually a myth?
0: If you go back before we had really any effective treatments for depression, back in in psychiatric hospitals, particularly 1930s, 1940s, people often stopped. They just retreated to bed. They didn't move. And they're often unwell for two years. And then they'd slowly get better and improve. Terrible damage to their lives and everything else. When the tricyclic antidepressants... Things a quick
1: definition. Tricyclic antidepressants are what are considered an earlier generation of antidepressant. They worked, but they caused a whole lot of bad side effects. Newer generation antidepressants are SSRIs, which, as mentioned, are things like Prozac. They definitely also have side effects, sexual dysfunction and weight gain to name two, but they are less severe than the side effects from tricyclics.
0: When the tricyclic antidepressants and other things came into favour, in the initial phases when people started to get better, they started to move. Mm-hmm. So they're in bed doing nothing. Mm-hmm. They started to move. And during that period where they started to move, some people then attempted suicide. Now, you go, was that because they got treated mm-hmm. or was that because they actually started to move right. and enact the terrible thoughts they were having. So there's always, prior to the modern antidepressants, been a concern to watch people closely during the period of recovery, which is the phenomenon you just described. Right. Then you go to the next level, the idea of the hysteria in recent times that the new antidepressants in some way have created mass suicidal risk. If you look at the population level again, and I'm a co-author of studies in the British Medical Journal and others, at a population level, when increasing antidepressants goes up, Suicide in the populations and suicide attempts go down. Now, you go to the individual level. There's a group of people when they start antidepressants, including the new ones, SSRIs, mm-hmm. in the first few weeks that they take the drug, some people become, if they're particularly anxious, become more agitated. Okay. And some people who are having suicidal thoughts say those suicidal thoughts are more intense and they some people become more motor active. So this is not a new phenomenon, but that does mean there's a caution So warning people that it's possible that some people become more activated, agitated, and they may express suicidal ideas is important, but it's uncommon.
1: While for most people antidepressant treatments are effective, there are about 30% of people who don't respond. But the reasons for that aren't straightforward.
0: This is the important thing. Many of those people in that 30% never get beyond the first set. They say, I've tried many antidepressants. You go, hang on, which ones have you tried? And then they tell you the brand names of what they've tried. They've actually had four different versions of the same drug, of SSRIs, Mm, or the Prozac-like drugs. There are many, there's half a dozen of them on the market. You go, no, you haven't had four different things. You've had four of the same. Right. And you probably don't have a depression that responds to that thing anyway. (laughs) So you need to change to a different type. Of antidepressants. And now are many different types. I'm particularly focused on those that relate to the body clock system. There are new ones like ketamine. There are new other treatments, new brain stimulation techniques. And there are the psychedelics. There are other things happening. There are a lot of other choices and there are different combinations of choices in different people. So if you think epilepsy or hypertension, lots of people don't respond to just the simple first off thing. Mm-hmm. Unlike in other medical areas, very few people get access to that better care, to the what next.
1: I want to talk about psychedelics here. So the promise of psilocybin, magic mushrooms. What do you make of that whole conversation? Because it was legalized in Australia last year, making Australia the first in the world to classify psychedelics as medicine. But this was all against the advice of the Therapeutic Goods Administration's own advisory committee and against the advice of many doctors. So where do you stand on the use of psilocybin?
0: Yeah, talk about get surprises. <laughs> I spend my life trying to change the health system, nothing happens. <laughs> you know, psilocybin, psychedelics, which we definitely were not having in 2022, bang. They yeah. <laughs> got licensed in 2023. Yeah. So this has been hugely interesting. One of the factors is the reality that many people with severe depression, recurrent depression, do not respond or have not responded to our commonly available treatments and they're desperate. You know, the other problem with their antidepressant stuff is the slow rate of onset of effect. We say to people, you feel terrible, you want to kill yourself, but it's going to take four to six weeks to help. This is really... And you'll get side effects tomorrow. Mm. Yeah, it's really not a great therapeutic message. Right. So there has been a market in these things. So just to go back one step on the psychedelics, ketamine, which acts in a similar way, which is better investigated. So if I said um, psilocybin versus ketamine, I'd say go down the ketamine path. Right, okay. Because it's much better research. But it has an immediate effect. People do say, wow... That depression, that black cloud lifted. I can see the light. I want to go out to dinner. I want to go out and have sex with my colleagues. And, you know, I, want, I want to do stuff. I want to engage with pleasure again. Right Now, that often passes off very quickly, but something's changed. Something different is going on biologically. It's chemically different but biologically different. Whether, so people have been searching for alternatives. And, of course, the illegal or, or you know DIY market, do-it-yourself market, has always been out there, whether that's been cannabis or alcohol or psychedelics or stimulants. It's, people are searching for other answers. So I think what's one of the factors that's driven this is, in fact, public need mm. and the DIY industry. But there are big commercial interests behind this as well, people, as there is with medicinal cannabis and mm. other areas.
1: So do you think we're over-promising on psilocybin right now. It yes. wasn't a good idea to... Okay, right.
0: Well, just think of all the criticism. I've had to sit through 40 years of saying, you know, Prozac's a dangerous drug and killing people. And, you know, if anything, you could argue it's a relatively weak drug that hardly does much harm. <laughs> we know that psychedelics, and we do know this, there's a whole other story that was all shut down by the Americans. It was all law enforcement. Nothing ever went wrong with the psychedelics in the 60s and 70s. Trust me, stuff went wrong. Right. People became psychotic. People had bad trips. They had bad experiences. It wasn't simple. So, yeah, it was... It was really psychoactive, but it wasn't all good.
1: This is like slightly bigger picture, philosophical almost question. Why do we get depressed? Is there any evolutionary benefit to it? Why why does this happen?
0: This is a really interesting question. So if you say depressed in the non-clinical sense, then the evolutionary theories say, you know what, there could be an advantage here of people withdrawing and not just simply rushing out into the bush. The classic one is to go back really to infancy and to the work around attachment. If your parenting figure takes off and abandons you, <laughs> you scream and yell to attract attention. Mm-hmm. If you keep screaming and yelling and attracting attention, something's going to come and eat you. <laughs> so actually, there's a what's called an anxious and arousal thing followed by a depressive withdrawal phase. Actually, what you should do then is go quiet. So people have this idea there's a built-in arousal, anxiety bit, followed by a withdrawal depression bit. Most expressed by at-risk infants, but also expressed when we're ill and when we're unwell. And I think this is true of depressed mood and distressed. We should cry when bad things happen. We mm. should get upset and sometimes we should be quiet and reflective. Mm. Sometimes we should let others take care of us. What becomes abnormal is if it persists. So if you keep crying mm. and you keep well, guess what? guess what the other person does?
1: They stop, Can They I? stop.
0: So there's a lot of discussion around depression, whether from an interpersonal point of view, it has the the paradoxical effect. It drives people away. So, mm. so I'm going with the depressions like pain. In the first instance, pain tells you, <laughs> get your hand off the hot plate. You've broken something, stop. There's nothing good to be said for chronic pain. And I think depression has very similar characteristics.
1: <laughs> Finally, Is there one myth in particular that just refuses to die or one that's like especially egregious to you that you'd love to have this book really kill?
0: Yep. It's not physiological. It's simply social.
1: Tell me more about that. Now,
0: that's not to say that social risk factors don't matter. They do. Mm -hmm. But it's like saying heart attack or cancer is just social or COVID is just social. Right, because it's spread by social factors. It's spread by travel. You know, the epidemic relied on travel. You know, social factors allowed COVID to move around the world, but they did not cause COVID. But I have people sitting in there in my office every day, going, "No, no, no, Ian, no, no, it's social. Mm. It's because of X." I go, no, 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 whatever, whatever was the combination of things that landed you here now. It's got to become now about you, and can we work out for you so you will know in the future what gets you out of the hole many people believe they're a depressive for life an anxious person and there's nothing they can do so probably the core myth that i'm really attacking is work it out get effective treatments understand your own vulnerability not the cause your own vulnerability and take steps to fix it so you can leave it behind
1: that is psychiatrist professor ian hickey he's also the author of the devil you knew the myths around depression and why your best days are ahead of you Now, if you know anyone who could benefit from listening to this episode, perhaps someone who's had depression in the past or is supporting loved ones with depression, consider sending it to them. We're available on the ABC Listen app or whichever app you use to get your podcasts. This episode of All in the Mind was produced by Rose Kerr and Diane Dean. It was written, edited and presented by me, Sana Khadar, and sound engineered by Emerus Cronin. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.